Same thing, day after day. Tube, work, dinner, work, tube, armchair, TV, sleep, tube, work. How much more can you take? One in ten go mad, one in five cracks up. You're listening to Navarra FM here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's finest and most extraordinary of radio stations. I am James Butler. Those words, of course, some of you may recognise. They're the words of a once famous bit of graffiti made by the pro-situationist group King Mob, active in the late 1960s to early 1970s. And those words were painted along a half-mile stretch of wall along the tube line between Ladbroke Grove and Westbourne Park in West London, back in the days when Notting Hill wasn't full of, well, the people who live there nowadays. Thousands would have seen it every day, and thousands would have thought that it described how they lived and how they experienced their working lives. What would it say today? The King Mob Graffiti says a lot about a particular kind of work where you travel to it every day, where you come home at night exhausted from it and feel like nothing more than eating and zoning out in front of the TV. Like many of the radical groups of their time, King Mob were making a point about the psychic damage work can do to us, that the things we take for granted about the way we work might cause us eventually to go mad, to crack up, or that seeing work for what what it really is, is considered cracking up. How might it differ today? Well, time spent relaxing without work impinging on it, without some activity to make yourself more more employable, some side hustle or even a second job, some time off unattached to the phone screen, some border between life and work. For lots of us, that seems frankly very desirable. One thing that's quite striking though about that piece of graffiti is that it doesn't seem to have occurred to King Mob that one might love their job, indeed that one might be expected to love it or that love would somehow be involved in it, or that you ought to be entirely identified with your work. And yet today, that expectation seems to be everywhere, far beyond the creative jobs where one might expect it. Why? When did this happen? What does it tell us about what work has become? I'm Sarah Jaffe. I wrote a book called Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Leaves Us Exploited, Exhausted and Alone. And uh, by day, I am a labour journalist. And the book traces that shift in our relationship to work, the rise of a new common sense. Now, the book divides into two sections. One traces the way particular forms of work are bound up with care, love, affect, The other half traces the ways in which other forms of work have come to depend on people's passionate personal identification with, and indeed love of, their work. Uh, And each of the chapters shuttles back and forth between concrete reporting of workers in those jobs, some historical anchoring, uh, and some very, very interesting theoretical work as well. The thesis, once you've read it, seems both compelling and undeniable. So where does that new common sense come from? Yeah, I, you know, this is where I named up Gramsci, right? Um, I think the important thing about that understanding of common sense that he really laid out is that it, common sense is something that like has material weight in our lives, right? It's not just sort of ideological. It is required that you behave in this way. Like I was just saying about my bosses at the restaurants who sort of expected me to come in ready to perform this sort of labor of making them feel like I wanted to be there. And that happened, you know, I I argue about this change in capitalism that happens when the industrial jobs start to go away out of countries like the US and the UK, and they are either being outsourced to lower wage, lower regulation countries in the global south mostly. Sometimes in the US, they were literally moving from sort of higher wage states with better labor law to lower wage states with worse labor law. And some of them are just automated away, right? Like there's just less labor necessary to do the manufacturing work for even though we're consuming more and more junk every day. And so what fills in the gaps is a different kind of work. And it is mostly despite, you know, all of the wonderful promises we got from Tony Blair and Bill Clinton about the, you know, the brilliant knowledge economy we were all going to have and the unending sort of, you know, admonition to learn to code, really what's filled in the gaps is low wage service work. Um, That is feminized work. It requires a lot more sort of emotional output. Um, I sort of say this all the time that like, you know, the assembly line doesn't care if you smile, but if you don't smile when you're working, you know, at Tesco, you might get fired. 
And that's even true, you know, in a pandemic when you're wearing a mask. But if you still aren't projecting enough happiness to be there, even through the mask, you can still get in trouble for that, right? And so what does that do to our understanding of work in this economy? And then there's the other problem. How do we solve, or how does capital rather, solve the conundrum of capital needs fewer laborers in order to produce, but capitalism requires that we work? And one of the things that I think we've gotten out of that is this idea pressed upon us that we actually don't work in order to pay the bills. We work because that's how we find meaning. And if we didn't work, we would have no meaning, which I just think is a load of garbage. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But I mean, I I think there's something so interesting here, which is that, I mean, the question that comes to mind and the question that I think occurs to a lot of people who come out of kind of you know, very traditional forms of left-wing thought is that I think this is you know th- this arises as well, this presents itself to us as like an obvious change in the subjective experience of capitalism, right? Like our experience in the workplace, um, as well as the the ideological form that it takes. And the question is whether that tracks back to something quite like fundamental changing in you know in the structure of capitalism itself and the kind of work that we do. And it would make sense, right, if rising levels of educational access, if like literacy you know, mass literacy, you know, widespread, you know, extremely extensive literacy and uh, uh, and advancing levels of education changes the way in which the workforce thinks of its work and the work itself. But, yeah. you know, it's startling in some ways that what goes along with it is this sort of transformation in in what you, you know, what I would call class consciousness, right? So, yes. um, you know, the, the, there's, there's, you know, you can go, go in all sorts of ways with this. There's this, the kind of Sigmund Bauman stuff about liquid modernity, where all the kind of old certainties are, are, are you know, are, are utterly, you know, utterly and ever increasingly more fluid. You've got the kind of, um, you know, the stuff that comes out of theorists like Andre Gortz, who's very controversial on the left, but writes about, um, you know, the, the way in which, you know, there's a kind of post-industrial socialism, very concerned with alienation, very concerned with the way in which we might escape work. And in some way, I think, kind of Andrew Gortz, very interesting person to put in conversation with your work. But it's hard to see, you know, I, you know, in a way, it seems to me that you're tracing the emergence of a kind of new class consciousness or, 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 or trying to figure out where... Uh, trying you know, to find the, the, it. Yeah, you know, figure out where, you know, so, so where do you see this common sense as strongest? And is it that, do you find like also strong resistance arising to it in those places? Yeah. So I think what we've got now is, right, we're talking about like rising education levels, rising whatever. Well, what's come along with the rising education levels at this point, especially, you know, I was just expressing solidarity with the generation that's graduating now, where, you know, they're graduating into a terrible economy, sort of like I did, sort of like you did. Um, We're like, you know, eight years apart or something like that, right, James, I think. Um, And we experience this thing where we've been told that, you know, you're going to go out and get these wonderful knowledge economy jobs. And even if we have them, then they still pay very little and we're still insecure. And, you know, most of us don't. And what we've ended up now is, is with, you know, educated people working at Starbucks. And this is the thing that like, right, Paul Mason called the graduates with no future. And this has proved explosive sort of repeatedly and is so a little bit. Again, I don't think it's a surprise that like we're seeing student rent strikes. There's a tuition strike at Columbia University here in New York right now. Um, There is this understanding that the thing we've been sold is actually not working at all. The other thing sort of to go back with where you sort of started this question is we get this, this shifting consciousness with the decomposition of the old working class. And part of that is, is just the removal of the jobs. But part of that also is the deliberate crushing of the unions. So, you know, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan knew exactly what they were doing when they were trying to destroy the miners, the air traffic controllers, the very idea of social solidarity. Right. I, I, Margaret Thatcher is just a quote machine. And, and I always think about, you know, economics are the method and the object is to change the soul Mm-mm-mm. because she was very aware of what she was doing. Yeah. I, I mean, th- this is a, you sort of anticipated you know, one of the things I was thinking is, <laughs> is, is, you know, I'm really, you know, it seems to me that, that one of the things, the other thing that you lay stress on here is, is that the nature of class as a kind of compositional process and really the book is an essay in class composition yes, saying right. okay like what <laughs> way, way in which like the the new uh kind of the new struggles are being composed and how kind of people are coming to awareness of of that you know and 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 that you know the way that that will necessarily differ right from 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 kind of previous conceptions 
uh, of the way in which kind of class is lived and experienced. I wonder if it might be interesting, therefore, to take up one of the points that you make about many of the jobs in the first section of the book, which is that they are jobs that have been both historically devalued, um, you know, partly because they fall on the side of, 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 you know, these kind of quite foundational enlightenment distinctions, so mind and body, public and domestic, and so on and so on. And, uh, you know, it, these are jobs that that historically were, if not quite outside of capitalism, then sort of outside, uh, you know, the, the relationship of exchange, um, often in, not in a great way. I mean, often, yeah. you know, basically, <laughs> you know, often <laughs> unwaged and, you know, really very oppressive um, situations. But there's something going on here. Or there seems to me to be something going on in what you're tracing, where these things, these jobs are being, or these forms of work being brought into the marketplace. Um, and there just seems ever a decreasing sense of an outside to um, that kind of the, the marketized relationship. The, there are two places to go with that, right? One is the sort of very concrete, like uh, my friend Gabriel Winant has a book coming up. I have a review of it actually coming out shortly um, called The Next Shift. And he literally sort of traces the decline of industrial jobs in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and the rise of healthcare jobs. And healthcare is, of course, now the number one employer in that area. And what actually happens is sort of because of, and this is somewhat particular to America because of American health insurance, because we don't have the NHS, you get access to health insurance through your work. So you got factory workers, steel workers in Western Pennsylvania who had access to health insurance through their good, good with big air quotes around them, because there's a lot of asterisks attached to that, jobs that then that ends up, you know, creating this market for healthcare. And then as those jobs disappear, the wives and partners and daughters of these, you know, steel workers are now drawn into the workplace, doing a lot of what they would have done beforehand, as you said, like outside of the market, but not outside of capitalism. And I think that's the important thing to remember. And this is where I go back, 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 back to Sylvia Federici's work in Caliban and the Witch. And this is where, you know, she beats up on this enlightenment distinction a whole lot. Right. The thing that, you know, she's arguing is that like during the enclosures and that the witch hunts were part of the enclosures, that what you lost was this potential of an outside to capitalism, even though a lot of the work that people were doing by the time, you know, after the enclosures was still not waged. And that's also like men's work, right? Like farm work was often not really waged in the same way, but it was being enclosed into this system that then the only way to get outside of it is to break it. I mean, I think it's it's interesting, isn't it, that this the kind of rise of the wage relation, it has this kind of absolute, I mean, you know, it's very hard to describe this and not sort of slip into language of the, the Communist Manifesto, everything sacred is profaned, all that is solid melts into air. Um, but, <laughs> you know, I mean, but that's, that's you know, one of the things that it does. You know, I struggle with that Federici text sometimes because, you know, th- there are places where the historiography is perhaps a little bit sketchy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you know, but I think it's it's tracing something absolutely true and that's like absolutely, um, you know, it's, it's also like the right period to yeah. start looking at it because yeah. it's when it's when you know the, the system becomes you know, universalized in 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 that sense um but but you know i mean i, I wonder if you see you know the, the, so, so we have this kind of increased sort of you know subsumption call it what you will the, the, this entry of this these forms of work yeah. into the wage relation yeah and one of the things i really like about the book is that that there's none of your none of the people that you're interviewing or talking to have a kind of uncomplicated nostalgia for what went before but at the same time right. although you trace these kind of you know in some cases really quite extraordinary organizing efforts it's in some cases very hard to see what their vision of really transforming that 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 workplace might look like or or really transforming what the kind of work uh, that they're doing might look like because there is this you know, on the one hand and it's a refrain that crops up in a lot of places you know this this um i am not my work so this kind of fundamental uh assertion basically of class consciousness mm. uh, but at the same time having an extremely difficult and in some ways kind of quite contradictory relationship to the the forms of work that they're doing so so i wonder if you you know what's the most striking or most interesting form of organizing or, or, or resistance to to this stuff that, that you've come across yeah i think the thing i wanted to capture in a lot of these stories is that you know i i start the book off by saying like i love my work 
is is to not sort of beat people up and say the solution is to just go back to not loving our work because like the 1945 version of capitalism was also terrible. Um, and, you know, and there, there is this sort of thing that's arising in some of these texts these days that is like, oh, if we go back to like before financialized capitalism, if we go back before, you know, whatever, if we go back before neoliberalism, whatever it is, um, then we somehow go back to something that was, that was pure and good, which is just like, there's, that's just garbage. <laughs> it's just not true. And so, you know, but that does leave us in this place where we are having these, these fraught relationships to things that are sometimes work and sometimes not work, or that, you know, that we enjoy and also have to remember that, you know, ultimately our relationship is still one of exploitation. And I think it's, it's so hard sometimes to think, again, to think our way outside of this thing, because it is just everywhere. Um, this is why I wanted to, you know, have a chapter about workers in, in sort of nonprofits and charity. Like literally it's in the title, right? Not for profit. And yet they take mm. on the same shape as, as so much other work does. And so, you know, it's, it's hard. Sometimes I think it's not surprising that the person in the book who's really talking about, you know, a, a society-wide transformation is actually the woman that I profile um, as a mother, right? This is, um, her name is Ray Malone. She's an artist in London. She does theater. She does all of these wonderful projects and she's a single mom and her organizing is actually around being a single mom. And that has led her not just to sort of mothers organizing to, you know, take care of themselves, but to advocating for basic income and to thinking about what would that look like if this, you know, what would it look like if we had enough money to sort of both decide on some days, she's saying, you know, I would love to decide to not do my paid job and to take care of my child. On other days, you know, she's also saying like, I also need time for me to do my art projects, to do things that fulfill me. All of these things that, that exist in this sort of slippage between work for money, work for not money, work that sustains capitalism, but also work that sustains us. Um, it's this sort of endless tension that, that is really, yeah, it's really, really hard to think outside of. There are like little solutions that you can do. There's, you know, unionize your workplace. There are all sorts of things. But if I had an answer to what the world looks like and, and not to go back to quoting Marx about the cookshops of the future, but like, I wish I did. I wish I knew what, what next looks like, right? I just... I want to call our attention, another Federici quote, this time from Wages Against Housework, you know, is, is we want to call work what is work. So eventually we might rediscover what is love. You know, we have to actually put boundaries around this thing somehow in order to remember that we are more than that. Right. I mean, it's, it, that's it, isn't it? I mean, there's this difficult, there's this, this difficulty and this, this thing that becomes quite slippery when, when thinking about this, because it's obviously true that not only do all forms of work, you know, tend, you know, sort of like mercury, liquid mercury flowing together, they tend towards that that single classical form of the the, the wage relation. It's it's you know, <laughs> it's not it's not merely that that one sits down and decides to sort of replicate uh, in microcosm the macrocosm. It's that, that there are simply social tendencies which are hard to avoid and it, it's it's a, it's an intriguing contradiction in some ways and it's it's there as you say most strongly in, in your chapter on the charity or, or, or movement jobs which you know movement and charity of course not the same thing um because the, the drive to be your work to be absolutely identified with your work is incredibly strong there and as you explain in 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 great detail it's often very 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 exploited but at the same time it's the, it's also obvious isn't it that that and i'm sure we both know from experience that volunteerism as well doesn't doesn't quite work like it you know it doesn't work because you know there you get the tyranny of, of the few people with vast amounts of free time but also because like <laughs> yes. One of the things that allows, you know, institutions to continue and endure is the fact that people, you know, have their rent paid and are able to buy food mm -hmm. by being there and devoting their time to it. And it's it's interesting, like you, you quote the 
the kind of Selma James line about this stuff, which is the really kind of startling one, you know, and like very, very true. You know, and, and let me find it. Every time we build a movement, a few people get jobs, and those who get the jobs claim that this was the objective of the movement and this was the change. I mean, that is uncomfortably true, I think, for for anyone who's been on the left. Um, for a while. And we all know how the sort of iron law of oligarchy operates in our organizations and in our parties and in our, you know, in, in our bureaucracies, especially. But then you're left wondering, you know, what are the steps we can take to make it different? You know, as you say, like trying to put the boundaries on it, it is always, in, you know, to some extent, never going to be a perfect thing. But even the assertion, <laughs> you know, to recognize work as work is, yeah. is, is, is seems to me to be crucial. Yeah, I think I've been thinking a lot about this book as as like a consciousness raising project and talking to uh, Novara comrade Kier Milburn about, you know, the consciousness <laughs> raising groups that that he's been doing with some other folks, because I do sort of think that 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 is is part of the project of class composition back to, you know, what we were talking about before that that it is sort of recognizing this in the world and in ourselves and as a project that that we actually have to be in together. And yeah, so, you know, at, at the end of it, I've, I've got like quite a few interviews where people are just like, but, but what's your advice for me? And I'm like, I didn't write the book. I'm joking that I'm going to start an advice column now, but like, you know, it, because it's, it's not, because I give great advice. If you're my friend, I'll give wonderful advice. Hey, monthly Sarah Jaffe advice column on Navarra. I'd be up for it. <laughs> I'm in. But like the, the way that we have to sort of begin understanding this is to understand the ways in which we actually have a lot of these things in common, whether we are video games programmers or, you know, delivery drivers or single moms. Um, and this is why, you know, the video games workers that I talk about in this book are actually members of IWGB, which Novara listeners are no doubt familiar with, right? It's, it's a union though that started with, outsourced security and cleaning workers, and then, you know, moved into app-based workers, like delivery drivers, Uber drivers, and then they also have a charity workers branch. And like, in some ways, this, this union is actually sort of this process of class composition happening in real time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As I was writing this book, I was like, oh, you've got a charity workers branch. Now, of course you do, right? But to look at that and, and say, like, you know, these different workplaces are sort of organized into different branches because they do address the specific concerns of these industries. But also they're organized into a broader union that says then we are all still the working class. And in that space, the space where foster carers are another branch that they have, right, where the foster carers and the um, Uber driver and the games programmer and the cleaning worker at the University of London are all in the same room. Like that's where the solution is going to come from. That question of of what sort of overlaps and brings those people together and and that kind of understanding, which is necessarily going to look different from when, you know, the dominant jobs were mining and manufacturing. And these, these are just going to be different questions now. And that, I think, is necessary and important to remember and to understand as we try to go forward. And as, you know, the thing you're saying about um, the movement and the sort of creation of heroes within the movement and all of that, like, okay, I've published two books now. I don't want to start thinking of myself as the voice of the movement. (laughs) I think that's one of the, the pitfalls we get into. And so, you know, I, I sound like I'm hedging and like, oh, you just don't have the answer, Sarah. Like, I do believe that the the answers will come out of struggle. I, I just want to, I wanted to pick up actually something you were saying about like this, this kind of the relationship of finance to this stuff, because there's such an interesting example of it here with like, and it's on my mind because so my brother's a British gas worker and he's on strike at the moment. Yes, and, you exactly. know, like British gas historically was a nationalized company uh, when it was privatized, like when, you know, the share offering really talked up the, the, this kind of strong Thatcherite thing of like, you know, everyone can own, uh, earn a, you know, have a little bit of a share in British gas and it'll be like little shareholders. And of course, you know, sure, maybe like some people bought it originally, but now and very, very rapidly afterwards, um, it was all bought up by these kind of vast agglomerations of capital. It's totally fictitious, this idea. Uh, it's, it's like an absolute fiction. And it just, it's, it's striking how enduring it is because there is this, almost this sort of desire, <laughs> this literally this investment in in the idea that there must be some sort of 
uh, uh, possible fairness, the, 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 the playing field really is level somewhere. And that if you can just get enough capital and get in on the game, then you can be part of it as well. Well, right. the amount of capital that you're going to need to do that is, of course, absolutely out of, yeah. of, of any normal person's reach. Yeah. I mean, when we look at Elon Musk, right, his parents owned like diamond mines or emerald mines or something like that in yeah, south africa yeah. which like hello uh, <laughs> we want to talk about primitive accumulation yeah. um let's talk about the colonization of africa um yeah and and when you look back at like the story of someone like Anne marie who spent 30 years of her life working at toys r us worked her way up in the company like again she did all of the things that like my libertarian dad would have said this is what you do in order to succeed you get a job and you work your way up and you end up in management you end up you know in hr which is what she ended up doing and you work really hard and you are dedicated to this company and then it turns out that after 30 odd years you know Mitt Romney sweeps in buys up a chunk of it and basically destroys it and now you're gone you're done all of that 30 years of work that you put in building up this company, you actually don't own any of it. And this, like the, the shareholder thing, I think is the most striking actually with some of the Walmart workers. Um, but you know, Walmart has this wonderful, you know, employee stock ownership plan. And in fact, they would like get sort of merit stock gifts. So like you, um, oh goodness, I don't have the book in front of me, but like, I believe it worked something like you would get a, a little pin for a little pin badge for your best if you did good. And if you got X number of those, you could trade it in for a share of stock. And so, you know, I remember being at the shareholders meeting with one of these you know, these women who had worked there for however many years, and she's in her mid to late 50s. I don't remember exactly how old. And she shows me her stock certificate, which is, she's like, this is my retirement. It was like $20,000. Mm -hmm. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And again, this is yeah. somebody who had worked there for years and years and years and is being told that you get to own part of this thing. And at that shareholder meeting where Walmart sort of brings all of its workers and they fill up the basketball stadium at the University of Arkansas, and they literally had... Mariah Carey and Rod Stewart performing and Reese Witherspoon is hosting this thing. And the workers that were organizing had put forward shareholder resolutions as shareholders and workers in the company, but the Walton family owns 50 something percent of the shares. So there's just no hope. You know, the, the workers thought it was really good that they got 30 something percent of the votes of non-Walton but like that game is also rigged and the Waltons also got like $25 billion richer during COVID because of course, where are people shopping right now? They're yeah. going to Walmart. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. I mean, th this is, this, maybe this plays into, cause this is this sort of sense of sort of pseudo ownership, these kind of like faux cooperative models or these kind of you know, things that take on the sort of, you know, the, the, the garments of historically sort of work around or sort of co-op driven forms of work. Right. And, it just strikes me one of the things that comes out so often in in the book in both parts both in in those kind of you know where it's it's used to motivate people in in jobs like that but also in those jobs that that one is supposed to love and be invested in that depend on um people's sort of personal investment in them way above and beyond you know the wage um that there's a series of ideas around authenticity and around the authentic so, you know, the the way it gets, you know, authenticity otherwise is deployed you know, in care or in domestic work, like both the care is supposed to be authentic, but also at various points you chronicle how these workers are reminded. Actually, they're not um, in a relationship of kind of familial, uh, a familial relationship in any way and reminded of their status as, as, as hired work, um, especially when they try to assert their, you know, their rights. Yep. Um, and, you know, th then also, but also it seems to me like it was really striking in the retail section that the kind of retail capital knows that you know you have these attempts to transcend what is otherwise quite a bleak and crude commercial relationship you know in retail and the way that retail is marketed so i think something really interesting is going on here do you see what i'm talking about yes i mean i was driving down to philadelphia the other day and drove past a billboard for amazon warehouse jobs and it was something a lot you know i was driving so i couldn't get a picture of it unfortunately um that it was something along the lines of you know get a job delivering happiness and I'm just like, Amazon warehouse jobs are horrifying, right? They are like, you know, th this is pretty well documented in places like workers have been carried out on stretchers because there's no air conditioning. People are peeing in bottles because they don't get bathroom breaks. Like now people are getting COVID. Like it's just, these are atrocious jobs. And yet even that job is being sold to us as like deliver fulfillment. And I think the, the question of authenticity, um, 
you know, I, I struggled with this in, in reading Arlie Russell Hochschild's book, actually, and I rely on her definition of emotional labor a lot, right, where she argues that sort of emotional labor is is controlling one's own feelings in order to produce a feeling in another, which I think is the part that always gets left out. Um but she and she sort of says, like, it's easier to do this if you convince yourself that you do feel these things. And then, you know, she sort of argues that you get alienated from your actual feelings, which I both think is true. And also, I think, you know, I always struggle a little bit with false consciousness arguments, because then, like, how did I get right, get correct consciousness? Right. Like, how did Marx get non false consciousness if you were going that way? You know, um, so I think, you know, the question of authenticity um, plus I'm an old punk. So this is just all sort of funny and fraught for me in, in different ways when I was thinking about, you know, being 19 and being in the punk scene and everybody being really worried about like who was authentic man and who was a sellout. <laughs> and, and I think what, what would authentic mean? Would authentic mean it comes only from inside of me? Because like, I'm also a communist and I also think that like, there's nothing that isn't a social relationship and that, that we don't sort of just like have brilliant ideas that are born in our heads. Like when you're talking, we were talking briefly about journalism and again, not to be too precious about it, but like, there's a reason I drop the names of half a dozen people in doing this interview. And some of those are people that I've interviewed because I'm thinking with those people. And some of them are people that I've read, but it's, it's what would authentic be, you know? And that's, that's such a complicated question. You know, when I'm talking to somebody like Adela, Adela Seeley, who's the domestic worker that I profile, who has a family of her own. And during COVID, she went from being a daily nanny. So she would leave her house in the morning, go spend, you know, however many hours a day with the family that paid her taking care of their children and then go home. And during the pandemic, she ends up moving in with that family. It was a choice between that or, or sort of not work. In that case, like this question of like, what are her authentic feelings for the children that she's caring for versus what are the pressures on her that are required by her duty to care for her own children, but that ends up being like financially she has to care for her own children. So therefore she has to go sort of devote her feeling to these other children. And like, she absolutely cares about the kids that she takes care of, you know, that she's paid to take care of. And so what is this sort of this drive for authenticity, I think, is, is it is so interesting to try to pull out of this, right? Like, what would we actually feel if we weren't trapped in work? I don't know, but it wouldn't be like, I'm not going to go all Thoreau and, and, you know, hide out, especially after a year of lockdown. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to go to Walden Pond and try to just like think my very own thinky thoughts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is what this is what's so interesting about it, right? Like, is that it's not like it's obviously not this desire which is is like it seems to me to be on both sides of the commercial relationship right it's there in like it's played on in people who are working and people who are in these jobs obviously feel it's overwhelming testimony in this book obviously feel kind of complex relationships teachers as well to to the kind of work that they're doing right and and it's obviously there on the other side of the relationship as well because it appeals to us when we feel if we're buying something that we have some kind of authentic connection or some kind of you know there's some meaning to it i you know so it's it's, it's kind of important so it doesn't seem to me to be just ideological kind of you know flim flam no, no it's like a contradictory desire there well yes. you know everything's contradictory anyway but we you know my motto for this year is like to stay with the contradiction so so it's so important it seems to me to to, to like to think about okay is, is this desire to escape that kind of all-consuming market mechanism like even though we're situated within it like that desire is a really good thing um yeah no, and i think this is this is so obvious with like both like the gamestop thing right mm. where like on some level it's very clear and the, the best pieces that i've read written about this are the ones that have pointed out that like people do actually want to blow up this relationship and like there's there can be like an almost too smug reaction to it by some of the left right being like you know finance will never you can't win it at the market which is true absolutely it's true but also it is still very interesting to me that people, you know, that Ash was tweeting, um, the people who were tweeting at her about this the other day, and the one guy who said he put in, you know, he spent as much money on GameStop stock as he would spend to punch a hedge funder in the balls. <laughs> That's an interesting desire. Or on the flip side, like I'm looking at this beautiful portrait that a friend of mine commissioned for me of my dog who I lost last month. And, you know, she bought it from 
a woman who does these on commission and, you know, she told me who it was. So now I'm following this woman on Instagram. And of course she sells these things online. And like, it is nice to be like, Oh, this woman who, you know, made this beautiful drawing for me. I have this like connection to her, but I don't, I, I got bought something from her. Like the, the whole promise of like Etsy, right. Buying crafts of all of this is that it's somehow outside of that relationship. We're going to the farmer's market rather than going to Tesco. Um, and it's, I think that while like, yes, it is true that these are not outside of capitalism, it is worth noting that like people are looking for something that's outside of capitalism. And, you know, and, and that I think, as you say, like staying with that contradiction and following that and going, okay, where do we end up? If we take seriously the desire of these people to punch a hedge funder in the balls, to be authentically connected to the people who make the things they buy, like these are not bad desires. Right, right, right. But they can end up in really bad places. Like like the Reddit, unsurprisingly, the, the Wall Street bets Reddit is like a cesspool of racism and sexism also. And, you know, so I think this is a really urgent question for the left, in part because if we don't channel it, someone else will. And capital is really good, the undercurrent of a thing we've been talking about this entire time. Capital is really good at absorbing these contradictions back in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this, this is, it strikes me, you know, two things that, that arise from this for me is that one is like, there's very obviously a danger of a kind of truncated attempt to escape right where you can you know you escape by rediscovering this kind of foe outside like the truth of your connection to the earth and the soil and your race and but you can see exactly how it would appeal and then there's the other which is maybe more interesting because they as you say in the epilogue to the book you, you write about the way that the, the artist is presented to us as the you know this society's image of freedom right so you have this kind of uh you know almost sort of you know, and you're very good at tracing the, the way in which like the artists that you talk to kind of engage with and, and understand the, the border between their work and, and capitalism. It, it strikes me that, that that's actually like a little bit distinct from the role of the artist, the image of the artist that, 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 that's kind of propounded, which is this sort of you know, free-floating, creative, uh, you know, a self-facilitating... <laughs> Um, you know, it just strikes me that there's a mirror image here between like this, you know, ideal of an absolute kind of empowered and totally autonomous creative force with the sort of, you know, the other chapter you have on on internship and kind of acculturation process of internships, which is all all about this kind of premise of like ontological inadequacy, right? That you're you're always inadequate and therefore you're always a, a you always have to be a project for yourself. You know, you're not enough. You have to improve yourself into this sort of utterly employable monad at all time. Even your sort of free time has to be devoted to that end. So it's, it's funny, it seems that these two things kind of sit side by side. Yes. And, and it's such a fascinating thing, like the, the artist's story that I love picking apart because like, you know, the sort of ideal artist is like Jackson Pollock sort of guy who's just like in his studio alone making these things that are incomprehensible, but also somehow brilliant. Can you tell I'm not a fan? Um, <laughs> but the thing about Jackson Pollock is he actually, you know, during the Great Depression, he actually was funded through like the New Deal Arts Project. Mm-hmm. And he actually worked for a time in New York when um, David Alfaro Siqueiros, who is one of the, you know, famous communist Mexican muralists had a a collective art studio practice here in New York and Jackson Pollock was part of it. And incidentally, he apparently tried to strangle Siqueiros at a party once. No one actually knows why, (laughs) but that's a fascinating story. So even this person who gets sort of put forward as this perfect American post-war, you know, individualist, brilliant artist as contrasted with like Soviet realism, right, is actually a product of both like explicitly communist collective art practice and also like state funding. That I think is is a great way to sort of understand the the fraught relationship that actually like art and the artist actually have. And then yeah, the intern is such a you know, it's it's I think I say in the book like the way that the labor of love sort of crept into all of these white collar fields because you have to be grateful and you have to always be performing gratitude. And that's part of that inadequacy thing, right? That you, and I loved that interview, by the way, she was so good. Um, I can't wait to read her book, but like the, the way that that feeling that you should be grateful just ends up everywhere. And like, I, you know, I, not to get too deep into my own story, but like I ended up doing internships when I was in grad school and I went to grad school a bit late. So I was like 28, 29 years old doing these internships alongside, you know, 20 year olds. And 
I sort of got in there with this, like, I'm going to hustle. This is going to be because this is the way that I'm going to get a job that isn't waiting tables anymore. And as opposed to like this sort of performance of, you know, just abjection almost um, that is expected of you. And, and that both paid off for me in some ways and didn't in others. You know, because I, I did not want to scrub your shelves, which I did have to do once. Um, I wanted to write an article. The, the experience of doing it as a little bit older person was a really interesting one for me, I think, because it, it was, you know, I was watching what was expected of me. Of course, the chapter is actually based in the story of, of interns in Quebec who organized and went on strike and organized around explicitly sort of feminist politic, right? That they were saying that we, you know, we see how we are expected to do these internships in, you know, more and more in feminized fields where like interns in, in architecture and engineering were paid. Um, and also how like being in an internship puts you in an automatically feminized position in the workplace because it brings that service work thing into all these places. So the, the, the image of the intern is always sort of fetching coffee, even if you're on a movie set. You're yeah. sort of the service worker of the arts work. I think this is an excellent way in to something that um, is a bit of a swear word, I think, these days on the American left. It's sort of the subject of all these kind of uh, you know, rather heated uh, Twitter arguments, but it also functions as a sort of thought terminating cliche it serves as a proxy for issues of political priorities and political behaviors and that is the so-called pmc oh, <laughs> which you know has a i should say this is the 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 three-letter acronym is is in fact for um professional managerial class it has a, a you know this is a concept with a particular history in, in kind of american theories of class it comes out of kind of the the work of the Ehrenreichs in the 70s um you know it, it's always seemed to me whether it's just like not a, a not terribly useful way to talk about the middle class and it's actually just a proxy increasingly for for kind of you know rather um dull arguments about wokeness so tell me about the PMC stuff but in particular I'm interested in like some of the, the professions that you're talking about are professions that would have been kind of historically right at the center of this you know putative fraction of a class which seems to me to be decomposing yes i mean so i think the one of the interesting things about it is as you say it's become this sort of um you know cudgel to beat people with on the american left and yet at the same time the american left the, the sort of socialist leaning left at least will all entirely argue that sort of teachers and teaching are an incredibly important place for, for socialists to focus. Um, people will sort of argue that like as part of a rank and file strategy for changing organized labor, that, that socialists should become teachers. Teachers was, were like the cornerstone of the PMC that the Ehrenreichs actually theorized. And what they argued in this piece, which was again, like something that they wrote in order to figure out their own place in left organizing, right? Should we should we industrialize? Because this was the thing that a lot of socialists were doing at the time. Should we go take these industrial jobs? That didn't last long because the industrial jobs disappeared. Um, but how do we understand ourselves as sort of college-educated professionals in this space where we want to say that the working class is the agent of the revolution, but we're not the working class, so what does that mean for us? And, you know, I mean, this was also what Lenin was struggling with, mm -hmm. let's be real. Um, this is also the subject of what is to be done. Um, the, the way that they argued it was that the professional managerial class was sort of, as you say, it was the middle class, but it was middle in a specific way in which it was the people who had been sort of assigned to manage and control and shape and educate and train the workers for capital. And the way that I argue it in the way, in fact, the Ehrenreichs argued it when they returned to this subject a few years ago and a, a thing that the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung paid for. The PMC, if it ever existed as a class, which the Ehrenreichs are the ones who said that, not me, if it was ever a good understanding of class, it has been decomposed. And I, I tell this story in the chapter about academic work. You know, I'm telling the story of this woman who is in her 50s. She is a PhD she, you know, went into academia somewhat late thinking this is really what I want to do, just as the bottom was falling out of academic jobs. 
So now she's an adjunct in New York City, which means she teaches at like three different universities each semester and is commuting all over the city doing her grading on the subway and is not paid a secure wage and has sort of one of the most striking lines in the book, I think, where she says like the only thing that has ever made her work dignified is the union. The time that she pours into being in the union is the only place where she's ever felt dignity in this job. But the way that it has fallen apart is actually now we've got managers, you know, managers are now paid in stock options. And so the CEO, who is not the owner, really, he's the manager, gets mountains of of options. And when the price of the company goes up, his wage goes up. I think it's interesting talking about this conversation from like the UK to the US version. Doctors in the US are are the sort of idealized, well, highly paid professional in the UK, you're, you're state employees, you're public employees, you're not junior doctors, even, you know, are they actually called senior doctors when they move up from being junior doctors? Uh, there's a different, I, there's a different for they become, I can't remember what they become. But it, it is much more of a position of wage labor to yeah, work yeah, for yeah. the NHS. And like, this is one of the panics that people have. Like my mother and I had this conversation recently where she's, I was telling her about my experience with the NHS last summer when I had an eye infection. And I was like, I was always in favor of, of you know, universal healthcare, but now, now that I've experienced it, I would die. <laughs> I would jump in front of a bullet for that woman. Um, and like my mother's like, but how do the doctors get paid? How much, you know, and it's this, this anxiety that we will lose this ideal of this highly paid, you know, professional class doctor, except like that's already happening because of managed care and hospital consolidation and all of this. It's, it's happening anyway is that even doctors, like we have a massive primary care doctor shortage because the only way to actually pay off your student loans if you're a doctor is go into some highly paid specialty. So you, more people become plastic surgeons than become, yeah. you know, the family doctor. This is, is such an interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, because it, it does circle back to this question about, I mean, there are two things that seem to spring out of this this question of, like one, yes, you know, you're exactly the P of this, this sort of concept, the, the, this this category is absolutely decomposing. Of course, the, the, the high managerial end doing quite well, everyone else not so great. But, it, you know, so it's interesting that the study cases for this are so often related to education because there is this wider issue about the way in which you know there is kind of you know that you know not just education workers i mean education workers are the sort of paradigmatic example of kind of a class mobility um, employment position it's one of the things that often you know those jobs are often the ones that you know are, are markers of transition you know whether you know socially or, or you know really rather than other than in strict Marxist terms, but, you know, from class mm-hmm. to class, um, it's, you know, education markers and class markers are so bound up um, that, that those things, you know, become, you know, in some ways, you know, the, the, there's, a, there's a danger with this stuff that you become a sort of third way and go, oh, education will solve all the problems. But nonetheless, education is, again, staying with the contradiction, has so often been the means for kind of class mobility that there's obviously something important going on there. And there's a historical reason that socialists have laid such... Um, emphasis on 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 education in, in that sense uh, but it seems that there's like another thing going on here as well which is to do yeah. i guess with sort of class identity right because so if if i take your book as being this you know the, the, this uh, study in a you know in class composition of these kind of these 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 instances of a change in common sense about how we relate to work and what kinds of resistance that might provoke it seems to me like one of the questions that it's engaged with if never quite explicitly but like very obviously in your case studies is this question of kind of identity politics versus sort of class identity versus actual class relations um and it seems to me there's there's in, always something interesting going on in right in that nexus right the the, the how indissoluble you know identity of one kind or another is from the political process. Does that make sense? Is that, is that, am I reading something correctly there? Yes, I think so. I think um, one of the things that we get this sort of frustration, and why I think a class composition analysis is so important, is we get this idea, and you see this in the UK with the conversation about the red wall and Brexit and all of this, right? Is that like the working class is this static thing that exists in certain geographical spaces and is made up of a certain type of person who looks a certain way and 
also like sort of statically believes a certain set of things as if, you know, if you go to a factory and, you know, this is what I do for a living. If you go to a factory and you talk to 20 of the workers there, you will get 20 different understandings of the world, 20 different actual class positions, 20 different, you know, race and gender and, and sexuality and family experience, makeups, um, religious backgrounds, all of that stuff. That is, you know, that's always part of, of the experience, but that, you know, we assume we can sort of flatten that down to a lowest common denominator that all those workers have in common, which may well be, yes, that they are all working in that same factory, but they, the experiences they have of class are very different depending on a whole bunch of different things. And now, of course, we have to understand that like class is not static, that a lot of the people in these so-called red wall areas or these, you know, these rust belt areas in the U.S. are actually the young people who are still working age have left those places because there are no jobs. They are flooding back into cities like New York and London and are ending up, again, working in Starbucks, working in Tesco, driving for Uber. Um, And that is, you know, while their parents who maybe are not wealthy, but they owned their house, they have a pension, they have, you know, if you're in the UK, they have good healthcare. Um, If you're in the US, maybe not. But but they have those things taken care of. And that actually, Kira Milburn again, right, separates the generations as an experience of class. And also, you know, we're, we're talking about questions of immigration. We're talking about um, questions of race and access to things. We're talking about access to education, which has both opened up and also costs more. So more and more people, again, have access to higher education, but the returns of it have shrunk and the cost of it has grown. And so now, again, you're maybe driving for Uber at night after your day job just so you can pay your $500 a month student loan. And that is a working class experience. That is not just because you got a degree, you are somehow the PMC and need to not be listened to. And all of this is... is Yeah, like identity, you know, again, sort of back to the authenticity question, like what is an authentic identity? Like, who knows? These are these are complicated, messy things. I love Asad Haider's book on this question. Mm, Yes, it's brilliant. But the way that we understand class composition has to not be we're searching for the lowest common denominator. Or if we are, we're doing it in the way that like the Combahee River Collective said, which is like if as black queer women, we were free, then everybody would have to be free. So what is that? Who is that worker now? It's not a white guy who owns a house and is like the last five factory workers in Youngstown, Ohio. It's actually like a black transgender sex worker. And if we actually take care of her, that's how we'll end up taking care of everyone. Um, it's, It's like you actually have to think in those ways rather than like thinking about, you know, what identity categories make up the working class in some way that, that always ends up generalizing to straight white men. Right. I mean, it's, it's so, it, it's interesting, this stuff, isn't it? I was uh, prompted, this, this question prompted actually, I think partly because I was reading your book and also reading something from many decades ago now by, by um, Joran Thurborn. I was just trying to think through it must have been. It must be something from the eighties, I guess. I mean, maybe a bit later. It might be the nineties. Um, and it was just this question about about identity and this, this question of you know, like so you know, the way in which identity is really inextricable from from the process of politics, right? That that actually, you know, when you know, in, uh, including you know, industrial politics, right? Like you know, you think the call to to strike goes out, and you're you know, in some ways, depending on. You know, they're, they're, immediately all these sort of claims on an individual's identity are made, right? So you've you've got you're, you're hoping that the claim as you know a member of the working class or the claim as a, a brother or sister trade unionist is, is the thing that 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 comes to the fore, rather than say I don't know um, uh, an aspiring manager or or someone right. who wants to uh, own a house, or let's say historically, you know, a Roman Catholic. So let's say that 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 you 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 know your boss that you're working in a, a predominantly this is you know it's my background you're predominantly kind of Catholic um, area and you 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 know you have appeals to to that bond of kind of social solidarity as well these these can proceed along you know, rather miserably along ethnic lines of course as well 
Um, you know, and there, there are all these kind of kind of claims on identity that happen at all moments of politics. And the question of which one predominates and how is something that, yes, I mean, it, it can be, you know, I think there's an important critique of, of, uh, the ways in which identity is deployed, you know, in, in terms of kind of political management there, uh, and I think there's a, a real danger in the kind of endless kind of vociferousness of of identity. You know, the the, the one in ne- one never identifies fully with the categories into which one falls. But but the way in which kind of identity is always always mobilised within politics seems to me to be something that, you know, we, we, so many of us on the left often want to shrug off and think, oh, if we only had a kind of this kind of chemically pure understanding of our relationship to, to exploitation and, and the world the world doesn't run like that you know i mean and it's it's so startling that the most vital moments in your book are where people begin to see the ways in which these identities speak to each other and can be part of you know a, a movement together i mean it's it's it seems to me absolutely essential yeah i mean i would say like almost like identity is also always in a process of composition right and just like there's sort of no one exemplar of the working class, there's also sort of no one identity within me or you, right? Like right now, as we are talking, and like, I think Marx gets at this in some places, right? That like, he sort of talks about like when the work, you know, workers have different experiences of class at different moments, right? Sometimes the worker is also a consumer. Sometimes the worker is X, Y, Z, right? Like it's, a thing that is happening in different moments. So right now, as I'm talking to you, the things that are are firing in my brain are not about like being a Jewish girl who grew up in Massachusetts and, you know, whatever, whatever, right? It's, it's at these different moments, we experience these things differently. And we also have to sort of understand the way that they compose the class as well as they compose ourselves. And so what is it that, you know, Jewishness has meant as a thing that has like composed my weird contradictory class position in the world. You know, my, my grandparents came to the U S fleeing persecution in czarist Russia, among other places, uh, my great grandparents. And then my grandparents did the stereotypically Jewish thing of opened a Jewish deli because nobody would hire them. And by the time my father went to, to college, you know, he probably could have gotten a job at an investment bank if he wanted to. He went to an Ivy League school, but he at that point had decided he didn't want to have a boss. So he went also into a small business. And I became a communist, which is a very particular Jewish identity politics. Um, but it's, it's you know, the, the ways in which that has shaped my parents' and grandparents' class position is important and necessary and also always inadequate for explaining who and why and where I came to have the solidarities that I have and, and practice and that solidarity is a practice. It's not just a thing that one conjures forth and then is. It's not an identity that one can be. Like being a socialist is not like an identity one can be. Um, I think oh, there's a wonderful bit in, in Bell Hooks where she writes about rather than saying I am a feminist, saying I advocate feminism. Because that is, it, it puts it back on what you do and what you are and this process of becoming rather than like, I have now become a feminist and therefore thinking of Ash's piece on the influencers. I am a, a feminist of color and therefore you paying me, you know, Venmoing me money is reparations when like that's mistaking the individual for the particular and it's mistaking the composition of both, you know, sort of identity and the class. It's always difficult when you know you're you're on the left and talking and thinking about work, which is that we we inherit this kind of complex tension between recognizing that the dignity of work, you know, we have historically valorized uh, the worker uh, in ways which are you know to my mind a very good thing, and we recognize actually that that there can be a very freeing element to, to work and that there can be, you know, there is something important to be recovered there while at the same time recognizing that, that there is also intertwined with that, a kind of critique of the form of work itself, you know, this kind of historically anti-work politics, but also, you know, the, the very, you know, the fundamental presumption that historically, you know, that irony that, that, that riddles Marx where he kind of 
you know, uh, uh, ridicules this kind of conception of selling one's labor in a putatively free marketplace. But of course, you're, you're obliged to sell it because otherwise you, you'll die. Um, so you, know, you have these two things kind of smushed together. And it seems to me that that's, you know, it's all, it's there in your kind of epilogue, where, which is, of course, all about love. And it's partly about reclaiming love from work and pushing back. And of course, for English people, it's all a bit embarrassing and emotional. Um, but, but, but tell me why, with that in mind, with that in mind, with the kind of, you know, the, that question about the dignity of labour and, and the critique of labour, why it's important to talk about love and why it has to be separated from work. Yeah, I think the thing about the dignity of labour is that, like, if we if we only focus on the dignity of labor, then that leaves out all the people who aren't working. And we're seeing the effects of that right now because of the pandemic, where, you know, we literally had the lieutenant governor of Texas say like, well, your grandparents will be happy to die so that the economy can keep going. Because grandma and grandpa aren't productive anymore. So it doesn't matter because the virus is mostly killing people who are older or disabled or had, you know, pre-existing conditions in some way, which is, you know, pre-existing conditions such a particular phrase in American politics probably doesn't have the same valence for most of your audience. But what they're essentially saying is the people who are not productive can go die. And that it is more important for the economy to spin on than for grandma to be able to, you know, live out another 15, 20 years with her grandkids. And I just, you know, I think that's garbage. And I think um, disability theorists, another realm that's often written off as sort of identity politics, but like people like Sonara Taylor, who have written a lot about their relationship to work as somebody who has a disability and it, you know, survives on, on supplemental social security insurance. That is a question of, you know, who society thinks of as productive. If she cannot be productive in this certain way, even though, you know, we're talking about a woman who has written a couple of books, I believe, and makes art and does all of these things. But as a person with a disability, society sees her as unproductive. And so if we only think about the dignity of work, you know, that can lead us to these sort of horrifying places really quickly, actually, I think. So, you know, I think it's important to think about you know, love in that way, because literally like you have to say that actually I love my grandma and I would like her to be around for as long as she, you know, is capable of being around and not willing to sacrifice her to go back to work. But also because I think, um, I was just, I was working on something yesterday. And so I was rereading Alexandra Kollontai on this subject. Um, and you know, she's just the best. And she was sort of also thinking through this question of like, what does love look like under communism? Um, and, you know, what are the ways that it has also been socially shaped for us, right? I, I write extensively in this book about the family as a style of work and the family as a workplace. So what do, how do we actually free that? But also in the very basic level that like, what is, what is being called to when you are called out to strike is also, it's not just your identity, it's your relationships, right? It is the question of solidarity. It is an injury to one is an injury to all, which is a much better politics than, you know, your dignity as a laborer, because that can be sort of individualized and hailed as, as, you know, whatever. Whereas the relationships that you are in, that moment, you know, the, the sort of early moments of organizing a union, I think are, are these sort of wonderful moments of, of attempting to trust that kind of thing, like the moments where, you know, I've been on a picket line with absolute strangers and the news comes down that you win and everybody is just like hugging each other and God, I miss hugging people, you know, and, and you don't know these people, but you do love them in that moment. Um, and I think that that's, you know, it's not just about like romantic love and we should have more time off in order to date, although also that, but like the ways that our relations to each other have been, again, that they were, you know, very deliberately destroyed by capital in general, by the neoliberal process in particular, you know, the destruction of these relationships of care was done to us on purpose because there's a very real awareness that workers coming together is dangerous, that people coming together is dangerous, that, that having that kind of solidarity that says, I'm not just going to sort of consign you to death in order for me to be able to like 
go back to eating at restaurants. Grandma must die so Citibank can live. That was the... the right. Slogan, and that it? kind of understanding of, of actually, you know, it's it's corny as hell, but like I'm feeling it especially because I'm in lockdown alone this time around. And so I'm just like, I like hadn't hugged anybody in like two months before the other day. And yeah, this this way that we are trying to construct a world and, you know, it's it's an Orwell quote, but, you know, socialism as a world where people love each other and they, that is as a first step and everything else we'll figure out afterwards. And the line that I think of a lot lately because, you know, thank goodness she's gotten a lot more famous lately is from Ruth Wilson Gilmore. And she says, where life is precious, life is precious. And that is specifically about, you know, the prison system and changing the way we think of justice. But it's also changing the way we think of work. That's it for this week. Work Won't Love You Back is out now, so do go pick up a copy. It's fabulous. And there's so much in it that we've scarcely touched on, so much in it to think about. My thanks to Sarah Jaffe there for a fascinating conversation. You have been listening to Navara FM. I have been James Butler. Stay locked here on Resonance 104.4 FM. And I promise that I will be back at the same time in the same place next week. Bye-bye. show like all the others is only possible through the donations of our supporters join us go to navara.media support <laughs>